I'm Major Robinson. Leslie Messer. Mary Stranahan. Senator Dwayne Ackney. Marcy McLean in Billings, Montana. In, in Helena, Montana. Colstrip, Montana. Sydney, Montana. From Arley, Montana. And you are listening. You are listening. And you're listening to. And you are listening to Listen First. Listen First. Listen First. You are listening to the podcast Listen First Montana. Hi, this is Chantel Schieffer, President and CEO of Leadership Montana. Views and opinions shared by guests of Listen First Montana do not reflect the opinions of all of our alumni or organization. We are a large group with lots of opinions, believe me. If you hear something that makes you uncomfortable, we invite you to listen deeply, listen hard, and listen first. So, so they they taught me, you know, the the, the old Mansfield quote of, you know, a, uh, a politician looks to the next election while a statesman looks to the next generation when forming public policy, and and that they lived, they lived that concept, and I, and and that probably was more than anything else, you know, that 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 helped me um, be able to be effective in the legislature. Welcome to Listen First Montana, a podcast of Leadership Montana. I'm Eric Alverson. Today we're in Missoula, and I'm thrilled to be joined on the show by Mike Halligan. Mike has a long history serving Montana and the United States. He fought in Vietnam, served 11 sessions in the Montana State Legislature, including two as Minority Leader of the Senate, and he has spent the vast majority of his career in a variety of roles tenaciously advocating for children. He played a key role in the creation of Leadership Montana, and then went on to graduate as a member of the inaugural class. Mike Halligan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. I'm uh, very honored. Where I want to start is in the fall of 1969, you wrote somewhere that you couldn't afford to go to college. Um, you decided to enter the Army, and this is, of course, right when Vietnam, the Vietnam War was happening. So can you take us back to that time and your decision to, yeah. to serve? Actually, it was fall, well, fall of 1967 that I, when I graduated from high school that spring, and in the fall, all of my friends went to college. And I'm selling shoes for my father at Hart Alvin Company at the time, and, and there was no way that they could afford to send me to college. So the Vietnam War is raging, and I had to make a decision as to potentially what I was going to do. So it took me quite a few months to do that. And so in the spring of 1968, I finally, so almost a year after graduation, I had watched the the Green Beret movie starring John Wayne and realized that if I were going to do this, I was going to do it as a Green Beret. So I went down to the Army recruiting office in Billings and went in and told the recruiter, he was nobody else there but him, that uh, I wanted to sign up to be a Green Beret. And he looked at me, and I was 5'10", freckled, skinny, you know, that sort of thing. And he says, uh, son, you're going to be a truck driver or a cook, but you're not going to be a Green Beret. <laughs> and I said, um, I'm sorry, that's, that's what I'm going to do. And he said, well, you get your father to come down here and sign the paperwork, and uh, that's what you'll do. 
So it didn't take much to convince my father at that point because I'd been out a year from from high school almost. And he went down, signed the paperwork, and did my physical in Butte like everybody else and and ended up going to Fort Lewis for basic training in Washington. And it's there everyone takes an exam on, in the Army, in the, I think in all the, the, the military, in the first couple of days that you're there. And, and about halfway through basic training, and, and, you know, and it was tough, basic training as, as usual, as it's supposed to be. But they called me in, you know, to company commander's office, and, and I'm 18 years old. And they said, well, you scored high enough on this exam that you can go to officer candidate school. And I said, I don't know what that is. And they said, well, you, you'll make three times the pay than a, than a regular enlisted man will. And you'll be able to be an officer as opposed to an enlisted man. And that will put you in a whole different uh, range of, of duties in, in the military. But we can't guarantee now that you, your enlistment was to be a Green Beret. We can't guarantee that because you're going to be in a different track now, an, an officer track. And I said, well, I don't know if, if that's what I want to do. And they said, well, we think it's what you should do. And what kind of officer would you like to be? You know, there's the military intelligence, you know, there's artillery, there's infantry. And I said, infantry, that's what I'd like to do, not knowing really what that meant. And so I signed up for the infantry uh, officer candidate school. So I finished basic training, finished advanced infantry training at Fort Dix, New Jersey, which was a two-month school where you, you use a lot more weapons and, and you, you that sort of thing, and you, you learn a lot more about tactics. And then from there went directly to officer candidate school in Fort Benning, Georgia, and spent six months at officer candidate school and um, managed to be one of only five out of the class of 200 or so that got assigned to the Green Beret unit, the seven special forces group at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And I was absolutely doing backflips over that. So, so the, just, I, as, as soon as I got to the, um, Fort Bragg, I went to airborne training to be able to jump out of airplanes, did that. It's a three week school and then went to ranger school, graduated from that and came back and, um, was, you know, during the Green Beret training as an officer uh, and uh, got my orders for Vietnam uh, within a, a, about three months of getting to Fort Bragg. And so uh, um, I, and I went to then Vietnam uh, as, a, as a, a seventh Special Forces Group member assigned to the fifth Special Forces Group, the Green Beret unit in Vietnam. Uh, in um, on Thanksgiving Day in 1969. Okay. You had this really powerful quote. You said, at 19 years old, they hand you your M16 and show you the 40 to, 40 to 50 guys and say, don't get them killed. That's so, true. So, And you said you grew up real quick. That makes you grow yeah. up real quick. Yeah, I mean, I was a C student in high school, proudly graduated in the middle of my class, didn't pay attention to much of anything. And I'm sorry to say that, you know, but that's mm -hmm. exactly the, the, the place that I was. And to finish the story a little bit about how I ended up getting that M16 handed to me was the sergeant major behind the desk when I'm getting my orders to go to the Green Beret unit. He said, we don't need any lieutenants in the Green, Bre Green Beret unit. We need lieutenants up in the 101st Airborne Division where they had lieutenants killed last night. 
So they tore my orders up right in front of me. So I never spent one second with a Green Beret unit in Vietnam. I went up on a plane that night to Huey to Camp Eagle, which is the 101st Airborne Division um, main base, and was assigned to the No Slack Battalion in as an Army combat infantry officer. And, and so that's when the, the guy handed me my M16 and said, okay, we're going to be assigning you to a platoon of 40 to 50 guys, depending on the number coming in or going out. And, um, you know, you've had good training, but don't get those guys killed. It sobers you up more than any, anything I don't think uh, you could ever hear. And, and the men test you as soon as you get there. And, and so there's in the platoon, you're, you're out, you know, in the bush. And, and where we operated, it was about maybe five, six, seven miles of lowlands with rice paddies out to the South China Sea and then hit mountains a little bigger than we have around Missoula. That were, that were all just massively jungle mountains. And they went all the way back, you know, to Laos and Cambodia, et cetera. There was massive, massive mountain chains back there. In that area that during my first major operation as, a, as an infantry platoon leader, again, the men are still testing you and you are new, but you've had good training and on the way, in through the jungle, narrow, narrow jungle paths, lots of booby traps everywhere. You know, I'm third in line and I've got my platoon behind me and a couple of guys and, and we had some Kit Carson scouts, we called them, which were the, the NBA soldiers who we'd captured and, and, and repatriated them to, to South Vietnam so that they worked for us. So they're actually the North Vietnamese soldiers you know, they couldn't hardly speak a word of English, but they would be, take the lead and they would find the booby traps and they were just excellent, excellent at that. So we, we had major contact at the, at the end as, as we went and, and, and everything went fine there. I, had, I mean, I did a lot of hunting myself and so I, I had a lot of natural instinct for putting people in the right places and for keeping everyone quiet. Mm. so that you knew and could see potentially what was going on and left no avenues in that narrow jungle trail where you might have some some weak spots and so and then we finished that operation so behind us were other platoons as well it was a major company operation so because we were the first ones in, we got to be the last ones out, which would mean there would be no contact going through the jungle because all the, the other company uh, platoons would, be, would have already gone through that trail. So we made our way over mountain ridge, over mountain ridge and valley and down. And finally, I mean, it was hard, hard hiking in, in the heat of the, of the summer. And as we got to the end, of the jungle, it is just like curtains parting. It, it is that dramatic. And then the lowlands went for five, six, seven miles all the way out to the South China Sea. And there was a village out there in the rice paddies, but there was a beautiful drainage that went right near the trail that we were coming down. And as we got near, again, I had these Kit Carson scouts right in front of me, but I was only 20, 30 feet behind them. And I could see out there that the other platoons had gone out and they were totally spread out on a little bit of the highlands before the rice paddies occurred 
and they were they just dropped their packs and everybody was resting in open view of anything that would be in the mountains any of the bad guys that would potentially mortar us and that's not what i learned in officer candidate school or in the green beret training or ranger school and so i went to the head of our of the of the trail as my guys were coming at me coming out and again everybody's been exhausted they've been marched 10 miles up and down mountainsides and and through creeks and things like that and and i told everybody as they came at me you are not going out into that area you're going to be you're going to the right and to the left you cut your way back into the jungle and and get some shade there but do not show yourself out out in anywhere in that open area you know, and they said a lot of obscenities that I heard as they were going to do that about what a you know, I was, et cetera. And again, I'm 19, they're 19, and, and you know, there's a few that were 20, a few that were 21, but everybody was very young. And within minutes, mortars started pouring down on the platoons that were out uh, in the open. And uh, a lot of guys were hurt and some killed and... Um, and none of mine. I mean, mine were all inside. But, but I was the one that, that, because I had positioned myself to be able to call in artillery to stop the mortars from coming, you know, because I was not out in the open area myself. I, I knew the, the area because I could see the puffs of smoke where they were coming, you know, out of the jungle. So, so it, it, it was a great experience within about four weeks of getting into country that the, at least my men knew that I knew what I was talking about, that, that, uh, that I would do the, make the right decision no matter what they said. And I'd had the right training, you know, potentially to, you know, to, to keep them safe during the time that we were in such a bad conflict. That's an incredible story. Wow. One thing that you mentioned, I think, in an oral history to the University of Montana is that is, it was when you were in Vietnam. The quote is, when I was in Vietnam and sitting in those rice paddies, it finally began to occur to me how important public policy decisions were that can really affect human life. And that obviously shaped you went on to serve 11 sessions in the Montana State Legislature, um, two as minority leader in the state Senate, and you've, your entire career has been defined by service. Sounds like it was sitting in those rice paddies where there was a spark that came into you that, that led you throughout the rest of your life. Can you tell us about coming to that realization? Sure. Yeah, I don't want to over-dramatize the, kind of the, the awakening that I had. But, I mean, the combat was one thing to mature you in ways that you could never be matured uh, in civilian life. And just the seriousness of, of which you had to take your job 24 hours a day for 365 days that you were there. So I, I mean, I was growing up dramatically uh, in, in making sure that I was doing the right thing there. But when we would come back from ambushing on any given night, we would go into a village when Mama-san and Papa-san and the kids would go out and work in the rice paddies. Their houses, we called them hooches, thatched hooches, would be free. We wouldn't do anything to harm them. We would just, and in this case, the monsoons, during the monsoon season, we would go in and, and get out from under the rain and try to dry off the socks and, and your fatigues and et cetera. And the monsoons last for a very long time, four to five you know, months. I, I don't remember entirely how long, but it's a long time to be wet 
all the time. Mm-hmm. And it was during that time that as an officer, now remember, I was a C student, hardly read any books. I really didn't pay much attention to, to, to anything. But I certainly realized after I'd been there several months that politicians can kill with their votes. I learned that, that the votes in Congress that sent us to Vietnam it killed eventually 158,000 American you know, men and some women, you know, was the wrong decision to make at the time. I learned that. Uh, and, I mean, it was something that, that awakened me, but more so than anything else, listening to the African-American young men from the inner cities of Detroit and L.A. and Chicago and New York, they were from all over. And again, we had one African-American young woman in Billings West High School when I went to school. So I wasn't exposed to that. But when these young men, again, they're, they're, oh, I'm away from them as a lieutenant. I'm not fraternizing with them. That just wasn't what you did. And I listened to the conversations they had you know, about the discrimination and the poverty and the prejudice and the homelessness. And these were things I had no idea were happening in my country had no idea. And day after day, and they would talk about lots of different things, you know, in the inner cities of the homes and the the neighborhoods and the the bad schools, you know, that they came from. I mean, they had no hope really in the way that, 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 that would help them other than the GI Bill, which is the reason why I joined the service, was the same reason they joined the service, is to get out of that, figure out a way. And when I look at goals that I set in my life, it was during that very difficult time when you're, you're you don't take showers, you don't do anything. I mean, you're just you're just mud, blood, and all the snakes and all the, you know, the, the leeches, or you know, all that stuff happening all the time, day after day after day. But I'm growing up the entire time, just just growing up and reading as many books as people would get sent over to them to read, and and realizing that you know something. I missed a lot. I need to go make a difference. I need to change it up. So when I get back, I'm going to go, you know, use my GI Bill. I'm going to get a degree. I want to go to law school. I want to run for office. Everything, you know, that I thought I could do to make a difference and re- kind of repair the, the the bad way that I'd started out with high school and, and not really taken advantage of that, that I was not going to miss this opportunity now. So, so that, that is where if I had to pick the, the, the place where my life changed, you know, was making sure these guys all made it out of there safely, and I never lost a man during the entire time that we were in combat over there, was trying to make sure then that I realized, you know, the promise I made to myself that, that I was going to, you know, get, get my college education, get that law degree, and try to help the very people that I listened to, you know, in that, in that hooch. Before we move on from your time in Vietnam, you know, 1968, Richard Nixon was elected. I think something like half a million Americans deserted the army between 1968 and 1973. Obviously, widespread protests, a very, very divisive time. I wonder if you can help me to understand it, or at least maybe just paint us a picture for the division in society at that time and and what you learned from that. Well, coming out of the 60s, we know civil rights and the civil rights movement was by far and away the most important 
um, I think, social change that was happening. And then right alongside of that was the women's movement. You know, clearly, you know, that was taking shape and, and moving aggressively forward. And then you've got the environmental movement that was occurring at the same time because of all the devastation that we had done, you know, to to the earth and, and with pesticides mainly and 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 uh, taking a look at, at at what kind of things that we were going to look at there. And uh, Nixon signed the Environmental Protection Act. I mean, so when you look at those times and then you look at the Vietnam War on top of it and the massive negativity around it, I mean, you know, and I'm, I didn't understand much about, you know, the civil rights movement until I got to Vietnam and, and listened to what it meant to the very people who were experiencing, you know, the, the prejudice and the discrimination. You know, I, I was trying desperately to understand it, you know, just from the feeling first and the emotion first as opposed to then getting into college and understanding more about it and how I could do things that would, that would help you know, repair that in some way or treat people, you know, the way that we all ought to be respected. So it's, it's that era of the early 70s coming out and people did spit on Vietnam veterans. And I, I never got spit on, but I, I had, there's lots of people in airports when you're wearing your uniform as I was gradually getting out because I spent six months when I came back from Vietnam with uh, the 82nd Airborne Division, so I got to chance to, chance to spend with the 101st Airborne Division, the 5th, 7th Special Forces Group, and then the 82nd Airborne. So I had great units to be able to, you know, on on that resume, which I was happy to leave behind. But but getting back to Billings, you, you did not talk about the fact that you are a Vietnam veteran because people did looked down on you if you did. And, and certainly in college in Missoula, at every college, I think, that veterans from the Vietnam War uh, had a pretty tough psychological road to tow uh, if, if they weren't prepared for how much negativity there was amongst the people toward them for participating in that war, even though obviously it was the government that put us there. And thank God we've left that behind. And now with the Iraq War, Afghanistan, and everything else, the, the public knows who's putting those kids where, those young people where they where they are in harm's way and uh, and didn't take and we don't take it out on the veterans anymore. Let's go back. You mentioned you were a state senator. So it was at 1980 that you were first nominated or you were appointed to an open seat. Yes. Okay, yes. and then served 11 that session and 10 yeah. more after right. that. Right. Okay, tell us about tell us about your time in the in the state senate. What yeah. comes to mind right away? You know, I think the you know, back then in the early 80s, um, lot and lot of farmers and ranchers still dominated both the house and the senate. And I'm not saying that in any negative way whatsoever because I being from an urban Billings initially and then urban Missoula, you know, had not had hardly any experience with farmers and ranching or ranchers uh, and, and farmers. And sitting in the back of the Senate with the major older, you know, they were all in their 60s or 70s, was was like going back to, to college again. And, and or 
just like in Vietnam, listening to those African-American you know, men talk about their experiences, these guys taught me more in terms of just the civility that's expected of you as a statesman and the fact as farmers and ranchers, they always must look to the long term. They can't just look to this crop. It has to be over the long term to kind of make sure that the, their livelihood, their soil, you know, everything that they stood for, you know, was perpetuated. And so, so they, they taught me, you know, the, the, the old Mansfield quote of, you know, a, uh, a politician looks to the next election while a statesman looks to the next generation when forming public policy. And, and that they lived, they lived that concept. And, I, and, and that probably was more than anything else, you know, that, that, that helped me um, be able to be effective in the legislature because a couple times the old Carol Graham out of Lodgegrass, he's passed away now, was ended up being the best man at my wedding and he was probably 75 at the time and never been a best man before. So I said, well, dang it, you're going to be one at my wedding. And so so he and, and he had a ranch out in, in, in Lodgegrass and had been in the legislature for like 24, 25 years by the time I, I got there. And, and, and it was... It was, you know, he he said, Halligan, you know, you, you may get elected for a very long time from the old liberal Missoula, but you're never going to get a big bill through here unless you work with those guys on the other side. And back then it was mostly guys, right? There were only very few women. And and he was right. He was absolutely right. So and you could see when the gavel went down and we were going to start business every day, they called them the old bulls. And I'm sorry that may sound sexist because hopefully now – you know, we've got lots and lots of more women in 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 the legislature as as we as we should, but not enough yet. And but the old bulls would would get up and they'd walk around to various desks and start talking to other senators about their bills or about the other bills that the other people had, and and they would just work the individual by building the relationship. And it was just fascinating to see how this happened. It, it wasn't you know let's get the lobbyists to do the work. They wanted the relationship, no matter who it was with, to be able to discover that. And once I learned that, when I had bills in dealing with water to help the irrigators and or the irrigation people in Missoula that weren't getting access to the irrigation district, I needed to change the water law. They told me, we'll kill this, Halligan, but if it's you, we're not going to kill it. We're going to fix it. We're going to make sure that it gets done. And that was after I'd been in the legislature probably 10 years. And I'd had a chance to, to work with them. They they were going to help me no matter what because of the relationship that they taught me to build with with other senators and, and House members as well. So so the time in the legislature, I mean, certainly the civility was there at the very highest of level. There's a few members that, that didn't comply with that. But generally speaking, it was a very civil place. States, men and women growing more in the terms of the women everywhere. And you could depend on people. If they made a promise, they kept it. And and it, it was just it, it was a, a life changing experience to me because you could change public policy for the better. And I focused mostly on juvenile justice, on child abuse and neglect because I represented children mostly in my in divorces, mostly women in divorces to try to make sure that law you know was protected kids and, and was in their best interest, et cetera. So so it 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 shaped me while I was maturing in that process to try to, again, help whoever, 
whoever knocked on the door that needed help. I didn't care if they were Democrat or Republican. They were going to get help. And mm-hmm. because that was, we met every two years and they needed access to that system during that four month period. And, and I was going to help them do it no matter what their political affiliation. I have so many questions, but I want to start by asking you about your best man. Okay, hold on. So you, how old were you when you got married? I was 34 and nine tenths, I like to say. <laughs> I wanted okay. to get married before I was 35. And your best man was from Lodgegrass. He was Senator, 70, Senator Carol Graham. And he yes. was 75 at the time. At least. I, I, I don't know exactly how I, I'd have to look back and see. But yeah. And so he was such a valued mentor and friend yeah. to you that you asked him to be my best your man. best man. Yeah. And my brother wife. Dave is still mad at me for that. But uh, my <laughs> older brother Dave. But, but Senator Graham was, was such an influence, positive influence on my, on my life as a, as a public official. You know, that, that ethic, you know, and just that, that ability, you know, to go deeper uh, into friendships, you know, that you need to have in order to form good pu- public policy, with the last piece being making sure that every voice is heard, is let's listen to what everybody's saying, and then we can build the best public policy to affect then seven or 800,000 people, and now over a million. Mm-hmm. You were quoted in the Missoulian at the, towards the end of your career in the state Senate, this is in 2002, there was an article published and it talked about how in your 11 sessions, you introduced 144 bills and you passed 91 of them or 63%, which is this, this stunning level of bill passage, right? And one quote that really stuck out to me is you said, if there's any legacy that I could leave, it's a strong belief in the ethics of the democratic process the absolute necessity to keep it open and above board at all times. Can you tell us what you meant by that quote? You know, too often, um, you know, money talked. And I didn't come from money. And when I got to the legislature, there were still enough people there that believed so strongly, you know, in, in the democratic process that, that I got to learn from them that it was... And, and I really believe this sincerely, that you cannot make a, a good public policy decision, especially if you are in such big majorities as the Republicans have been in the last several years. Not, not, I mean, I'm not dis, I'm disparaging them for the big majorities, but you don't then need to listen to the minority or anyone else who disagrees with you. And that's not what occurred and not what I learned that, that you know, I, I wanted to have that rural voice in bills that I was carrying or in, in any bill. And in many cases, you know, they, they're out in the middle of nowhere. They, their voices in many cases aren't heard. They had lots of good senators and House of Representatives members there. But it's, it's, the, it's the ethics which isn't just being polite. It's making sure that every voice gets a chance to be heard. And, and I suppose coming away, you know, from the, the legislature, I mean, it was the is access to that four-month process that's so full of pressure, you know, that I took so seriously that, that you know, I, one quick story is I'm, it's the end of a session, and I'm near the end of my career in the legislature, and I'm standing getting a bill in the Senate hallway there, and, and walking down the, the, the hallway is Carlos Duran, famous doctor that started the Heart Institute in Missoula, and he's walking with Connie Erickson, his assistant, and they go walk by, and I, I knew Connie a little bit. I didn't know the doctor, 
but I said, you're looking a little glum. What's going on? She says, well, we're about to do the Heart Institute in a couple of months, but someone just filed a complaint against us. We've never had this happen before, that none of the doctors we ever bring in are certified in Montana to be able to teach surgery. And so they, you know, we probably can't have the Heart Institute, and it's too late during the session in order to, to submit a bill. And I said, who told you that? And I said, come with me. So we went down to the chief legal counsel's office, Greg Pettich, tremendous guy, knows more about the law than anybody on earth. And I said, Greg, you know, is there a bill in the process that has a broad enough title? Because in the Constitution, we have a, a requirement that every one subject clearly expressed has to be in every bill, except the budget bill. So everything else, you can act, can't go home and say, I voted for X, but because something else was in it or I didn't, whatever it is, their one subject has to be there. So I asked him, is there a bill with a broad enough health care subject, you know, a title that you could include this measure in it? And he says, yeah, there's three. They're all Republican bills. And I knew all the Republicans whose bills they were. So I said, where, is, where are they in the process? Well, two were still in committee. And so I said, well, I think I'll go to this senator, or how, I can't remember if it was a House member, or whatever, and ask them if they could add an amendment to their measure that allowed for you know, the Heart Institute to bring in doctors, whether they were certified or not, as long as they were certified in their home state, whatever it is. And they said, sure, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it was no partisanship at all. It was, yeah, that's a very good idea. We've got to make sure that happens. And so... So, I mean, it was, again, it, was, it just showed you the, the statesmanship that, that kind of existed and that you could then help people because people acted so civilly toward each other and, and, and so respectful. So, it, I mean, it wasn't, hopefully other senators and House members would have been able to do the same thing, you know, but, but this Republican didn't make a difference, got into the bill, passed the bill, and they did the Heart Institute. So, so that just is an example of... I mean, you asked me you know, what I learned. I guess you know, you you know, you learn that the relationships, deeper relationships, you know, are are the most important way for you to affect public policy, you know, of the very of your colleagues in the House and in the Senate, and the fact that you, if you respect them, uh, you know, that they hopefully will respect you. And and even though partisanship partisanship nowadays seems to overwhelm or overcome friendships and relationships but but i think there's still a glimmer of hope left mm -hmm. you know to to allow you know the statesmanship piece to, to begin making inroads back into the process one thing you you told me too that that absolutely just floored me first of all you said one of my major goals as i gained seniority was to act as a unifier of people rather than a divider and you said you know if you do not have a broad and diverse conversation on issues you won't make the best decisions and it seems like you must have really been respected and recognized for for really delivering on that belief because you had colleagues from the other side of the aisle appoint you to the chair of co different committees. Why would Republicans put Democrat Mike Halligan in that position of power? 
Well, as you gradually gain seniority and you gain those, those, the trust of your, your colleagues, there were many issues that, and even though I was going to law school at the time, then ended up obviously graduating in, in, in 85 and still served to 2001. But in many cases, you had the deeper expertise in the public policy arena that, that a newer, a freshman senator didn't have. And uh, in one of the areas, uh, banking, when the, the small banks or the little banks were fighting with the bigger banks, and it was ba- branch banking that was a huge issue, and, and, and it was a very divisive issue in one of our uh, younger, and I think it was even a, a farmer uh, or rancher carrying the bill, but did not have the experience in the issue at all. And the bill was going to fail, if someone, something didn't happen. So the Republican leadership got together and, and the bill had finally made it to the floor of the Senate and, and the Senate leaders you know, came to me and said, we're gonna appoint you as chair of this, this conference committee and you know, we know you're gonna do it right and we're gonna put the, the sponsor of the bill, the farmer rancher on there with you and there was always three senators. It was two Republicans and myself as a Democrat, and then there would be three from the House, and depending on who was in control over there. And, and we had a hard-fought bunch of meetings, and I had to stand up a couple of times and, and look at the audience and, and read them the riot act, because they were, they were used to fighting for votes as to, I suppose, of fighting for the right thing. You know, that's that we knew. That's what they were used to. That's what I had. I had learned that they're 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 not looking at the long term. They're they're looking at somebody hired them to get a bill killed or get a bill passed, and whatever way they were going to do it, they were going to do it. And I was there to do the right thing. And and we ended up, you know, and I had to get up and and raise my voice a couple of times to say, you give us, you know, the truth on this bill, you know, not what's the partisan truth either way. I, I need the truth, whatever it is, and we can make a better decision that way. So, I mean, it was an example that that, that we got it done, and, we, and, and the, the law really hasn't changed since we passed it because it was done with people finally realizing that they're going to they're going to give us the truth, and we were going to do the right thing, and Republicans and Democrats did the right thing, and so I mean, it was those were fun, those were those were hard fought, fun, but. When you finally reach kind of the senior level of status and how to deal with public policy in ways that bring everybody to the table when you know you're going to make a better decision, it's just getting people to realize that that exactly is what's going to happen here if we all get a chance to have our, you know, our say. Hmm. And, uh, and, and that was one good example of how it all worked out well. It was right around that 2002 to 2005 range that Tom Scott uh, got really excited about the idea or rather uh, the necessity for a program like Leadership Montana. And you were involved in that. I think you knew Tom fairly well, right? Can you yes. tell us that story about, about what y'all, what you saw, what Tom saw in your conversations yeah. with him as you decided that Leadership Montana was, was something the state needed? And it was during a legislative session in which, during a caucus, and there were lots of major issues that obviously that you end up debating. But in this session, there were some very volatile personalities that ended up uh, in, a, in a caucus that were then public, so the media could be there, that were very mean-spirited. And Tom Scott kind of saw the way the legislature 
had, had deteriorated to the point where obscenities were used against other House or Senate members and the vitriolic nature of the relationships that had kind of developed during the session. And I think he just finally got fed up. And he said, okay. And he, he, I think he initially had looked to the leadership Wyoming example of how to build a cadre of leaders that, that at their core would have ethics as, as something that just that fundamentally led them you know, in, into a process combined with civility. And, and when you put, match those two, then, then you're going to have a process that works for everybody. And so it was his vision after he went to Wyoming, and then I think he probably went to three or four other states to see what kind of leadership classes they had and, 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 uh, and how he ever, man, and I got a chance to be involved, you know, in, in the formation, you know, of the committee in terms of recommending some names. And then I was, I participated in the committee, but I don't, I cannot recall whether I was a formal member of the actual organizing committee, but Anyway, I got to be in, in the first Leadership Montana class. And, and I think the public listening to potentially this podcast, you know, I hope that you come away. If you don't remember anything else in this podcast, it's, it's the vision that Tom Scott had that, that when you are a public official or you're a friend of someone, you are a neighbor of someone, you are a fiduciary of the common good. You are a fiduciary of the public interest, you know, and a fiduciary has to act in the best interests of their ward or their neighbor or their friend. And, and he, he wanted a core of, a, of leadership training that would, that would have Republican, Democrat, Independent, whoever it might be, understand that there was such a deeper purpose for serving than because you were a Democrat or Republican or Independent, that that, that would guide you far more in your decision-making than, than any, certainly there'd be partisan battles and, and you would be conservative or liberal or somewhere in between. But in the end, in working out solutions, it was his vision that it would that, it'd be that fiduciary kind of um, uh, message that you lived as a leader as opposed you know something that you just plugged in when you went to the legislature you've been in your post now at the washington companies uh for 20 years yes is that right yep. um Tell us, just give us a a basic outline of your work here, and then I I really want to do a deep dive on on why you care so much about early childhood. Um, It's important, you know, we haven't had really a chance to discuss this aspect of your career, but from 1990 until 99, you worked in private family law practice. You were a guardian at Lytham for many kids. From 99 to 02, you were the supervising attorney for the Montana Department of Justice Child Protection Unit. So you've had this through line of your career of really advocating for young children, and that has continued uh, at your time here, certainly at the Washington Company. So tell us about the start of your time here and, and how you've advocated for kids throughout. Having done the work of representing many, many children, you know, as a guardian ad litem in, in, in difficult divorces, 
and then uh, those that are the kids that were being abused and neglected for three years as the head of the child protection unit. I mean, my heart and soul was was with kids. And so I did a lot of legislation related to juvenile justice and related to, to family law that that tried to, to, to balance it out so that mostly women, I represented mostly women in, in family law, divorces and that sort of thing, to balance it out to protect them from being taken advantage of in that process and used to be you know, the the man could hide assets and you know, she could never find them and that sort of thing. And so with all the other, and, and of course, delay things or, or, or do things because she did not have the resources, et cetera. So I passed legislation to where that can't happen anymore. I mean, everything stays the same if somebody walks out the door and everybody has to disclose all of their assets, all of them, or they lose them. So, I mean, and that's without paying an attorney to do it. They automatically have to do it. So it was learning more about how the public sector, particularly local, state, or federal government, might support families to be able to change that trajectory of, of that child if, if the family is struggling and we knew from all of the scientific research, all of the, the psychological research, that if you change a child's story early on, you change that story for a lifetime. And that's, that quote is not from me. That's from other, other people. But it, it is absolutely true. And so as we looked at that from the foundation with Phyllis Washington, a former Prescott School teacher for five years and, and, and a graduate in early childhood education, or it's an elementary education degree at the University of Montana, very, very committed, you know, to, to helping, you know, children succeed. So, so when we were first involved with early childhood, it's because my boss, Larry Simpkins, the president of the companies, was on the Federal Reserve Board, Minneapolis branch. He happened to to get to know Art Rolnick, who was then the senior vice president of research for the Federal Reserve Board, Minneapolis branch. And he wrote a seminal paper on the difference between an investment in a child as early as zero to three and the in building the stadium. You know, he said, here's the difference between investing in that economic development piece and a child and why the return on investment on this child could be as much as 10 to 1, 12 to 1, you know, if you can just, you know, keep that kid, you know, on a track that keeps them in school and graduating and out of the social welfare system, out of the criminal justice system, et cetera, it can happen. And he wrote the paper that, that put the two together, and it was a no-brainer at the end that we should be investing our money in, in, in kids and families. You know, and it's not the government raising your, your child. It's trying to figure out how do we support that family in ways that help parents understand how to be better parents from people who have obviously done that, whether it's faith-based or whether it's just through nonprofit communities or psychologists and sociologists out there. But, but it is truly a way to make a difference in society and more impactful than any investment, I think, that, that a, a government or, 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 or a family can make. Is, is with their young children, zero to three. That's where 80, 95% or 90% of brain development happens in that zero to three age, as you well know. And so that's why the investment is so important in, at that early stage. Is there anything that you want to share with listeners before we, we move to this final section? Maybe something that you care about deeply that we haven't talked about on the show or anything else that you would want to say? 
Well, there's a, just a couple of quotes that that have shaped my life, you know, and and one of them is the uh, letter from a Birmingham jail from Martin Luther King in 1968, as a you know 19-year-old, you know that. We must repent in this generation, not simply for the vitriolic words and the actions of the bad people, but the appalling silence of the good people. That quote resonated with me that, that I had done nothing during my high school career, that I, that, that I would now had the opportunity with the GI Bill to be able to take that appalling silence as it meant to me and to make a difference. So that is, that is a very important I, I, I read that quote many times when I should be doing something out in the, in the community, you know, to help out. And the other, you know, quote is, you can pander to people's fears in order to win, or you can tell the truth in order to lead. And I learned that back during my legislative career, that the, that was one of the most important things I could do, obviously, was just tell the truth. And then I think there's a Jesse Jackson quote that leadership isn't just a matter of choosing sides, it's bringing sides together. Mm-hmm. And he and other people have, have said that quote in different ways, but I, that's the one that was most meaningful to me And when he was here running for president, I think in 1988, that he said that quote at the House of Representatives. And, and I just think the fact that you can get up all you want, make those big speeches on the floor of the House or the Senate, you know, and pour your heart out. But if that, the leadership begins when you sit down and you don't have the votes, that's when the leadership begins is to be able to build those bridges with people to get the votes to do what you want to do. All right, let's move to the lightning round. Let's start with a, a movie or a TV recommendation. I, I love Saving Private Ryan or The Shawshank Redemption. What's a bold prediction for the future? I think the Generation Z is going to change it up so so dramatically in ways that are going to be so much more beneficial to society than than any of us have ever thought. I think that generation are finally going to be able to put technology in its place. If we can if if they do it right, they'll be able to put those phones down, build those relationships, build that communication. So I think it's just families will be better off, you know, work will be more productive. We're going to have a better environment because they won't be driving to and from work because we're going to be able to handle this in different ways. We'll be, you know, all this stuff. So I think the generation, so I'm, I'm more positive about that entire generation. They don't have the social, the social baggage of having, you know, anybody be a particular race or be a particular color or be a particular religion or, mm-hmm. or transgender or whatever it might be. They don't, they don't care about any of that stuff. And that's a very good thing. Let's just talk to each other about being human. How about a book recommendation? I think one of the most important books that I've read about the Constitution is Miracle in Philadelphia. I think the author is Doris Goodwin Kearns. Excellent book about the the writing of the Constitution. What's the most important thing? You have three sons. What's the most important thing that you can teach your kids? Well, I think what the greatest generation gave us, they modeled. They didn't say it. So I think to my sons... The gift that I, that hopefully blessing I gave them was, was a household you know that respected each other, mm-hmm. and and that they could come away with the second piece of that is the giving back to the community and that that gave us so much or was giving us so much. So 
treating each other with respect and then treating the community the same way. If you're on a road trip in Montana, long, long road, so you're driving from Missoula to Sydney, what are you stocking up on, on for food? What are you eating on the road? I'm going to stop at Wheat, Montana. I'm going to have a big brownie. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm going to buy a few other, you know, of the rolls, the, the poppy seed muffins, etc. And uh, I'm going to buy one of those uh, hot dogs that they've got that's wrapped in dough. Just, just to kind of keep aside after the, I'm going to take a bite of the brownie first. And then I've, I've got to have uh, the bag of white cheese popcorn I'm going to buy at the gas station. You know, that's going to be with me to keep me awake just in case it's a long drive. Uh, okay, so this is my last question. What's your definition of leadership? In one word, I would have to say, and, and this is probably going to be unexpected, is humility. When I think of the, the most impactful leaders like a Nelson Mandela, you know, or Desmond Tutu, or Mother Teresa, or even the Pope, or... You know, there are some politicians that, that really reflect this. Mike Mansfield, you know, would have been one of them. That the, the humility that you show draws, I think, people to you in a comfortable way that, that brings the best out of them so that you can listen and hear what they have to say. And whereas if you're condescending, if you are pretending to be smarter than everybody else and and, and if you don't, and even though if you're trying to respect people's opinion, but I think if people sense this deep humility in you, that they're drawn to you and they're drawn to be And if you want to be in, in, in public policy where I've spent most of my life you know, paying attention to, you know, that, that humility, I think, serves you well to be able to make sure you can represent the people well. Mike Halligan, you have had a, an enormous, enormous impact on, positive impact on my life. And that is only a teeny tiny fraction, a drop in the bucket of the total impact that you've had um, on our nation and, and on Montana. And for that, I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. And, and thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a, a pleasure. And, you know, I'm honored to even be asked, you know, to, to be here. So thank you. Thanks to Mike Halligan for taking the time to come on the show. And thanks to you for listening in. If you've enjoyed today's show and want to support Listen First Montana, please tell a friend about the show or share your favorite episode on social media. Those small steps can really help us connect these stories to more listeners. Our intro is a rendition of the Montana State song by Scott Gudger, and our other music is from Blue Dot Sessions. We'll see you in two weeks with our next episode. Until then, thanks for listening to Listen First, Montana.